Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. This is a re-release of a conversation I first had three years ago with Dr Pippa Grange about psychological fear. Now, Dr Grange is the former England football psychologist who was really credited with helping to transform the England men's football team's fortunes at the 2018 World Cup when they really broke through and reached the semi-finals for the first time since 1990. In this episode, Pippa explains the difference between in-the-moment fear and not-good-enough fear. And it's the latter that really is the focus of our conversation and which is lurking behind many of our self-defeating behaviours. Pippa's book, which we referenced during this conversation, is called Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. Pippa Grange, Dr. Pippa Grange, how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Simon. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm thrilled to speak to you, to have you on the podcast. I've got to be honest, I've essentially been trying to track you down for over a year, and it's all become very quickly apparent why I've been unable to, to a certain degree at least, insofar as you've been clearly working on this book, haven't you? (laughs) I have, yeah. Um, I actually finished it in December last year, which is uh, interesting timing now for it to be out yesterday because it was, um, you know, I had no idea at the time that it would be in the middle of a pandemic and, and fear would be such a big topic. But 
yes, I've been deeply involved in that for the last period of time. And, and obviously my work with Right to Dream alongside, um, which takes me to Denmark and Ghana. So um, I haven't been easy to track down. You've done a good job. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're very, very hard to track down. And like you say, right at a kind of key moment in human history, really, with fear being so pervasive and what you're talking about in terms of redefining what's important, understanding the, the role that fear plays in so much of society, sport, ourselves. It does really feel of the moment. As I said, I spoke to, to Kath Bishop about the problem with winning and redefining what is important and winning. And I just think it's very interesting that her work and your work have come at, at this moment. It does feel like uh, it's right on cue. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I suppose Kath Bishop would have been the same. Neither of us could have predicted that this would have been the case. But um, I'm very grateful that maybe the things that I've been exploring and trying to put down um, in words will be helpful for that reason. Um, facing, you know, what, what does a new normal look like and where do we go from here from a coronavirus perspective, as well as all the things that I started talking about. And I, and I listened to your podcast with Kath and I thought I had an immediate professional crush on her. I thought that, that was a, a great conversation and I, I couldn't be more on the same page with her. She was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the timing with that, with even the stuff that came through with British Gymnastics, that, that same week that we spoke or the, the same week that it came out, I mean, it was um, it was quite remarkable, the timing. And do you describe yourself as a culture change specialist? People would otherwise know you as a performance psychologist. You lean towards the former. Your approach seems to be very holistic. And in fact, when I read your work, there's a touch of the therapist in the way that you work with people. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I think I started off um, my um, first doctoral degree was uh, applied performance psychology, you know, and, and uh, that's what I learned. But I did learn it from the perspective of uh, the person, the athlete being central, um, sort of the centre of the hub, so to speak. So I'd always had that bent. But my first um, my first gig was with the AFL Players Association in Australia, and I set up um, their psychology services for players and their families, AFL players and their families. And it was largely off-field work. So it was all about um, how they were dealing with the stuff of life, you know, whether that was depression, injury management, um, you know, and, and what that meant for their career, transitions, drugs, alcohol, relationship difficulties, all of the sort of normal stuff that any human being can encounter um, and what that meant in the in the context of professional sport. So I, I did really take a therapeutic perspective for those first five years of my career. And I think that's shaped my view very much over time. In the book, you touch on the spiritual, the unscientific, the ineffable, if you like. So I sort of thought in a world of marginal gains, you've got a touch of the shaman about you. <laughs> well, that, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. And I think that... Um, you know, and talk about this, this sort of wildly unscientific idea of soul, but soul has been around for way longer than science, actually, um, and in all of the wisdom traditions. But not only that, you know, in, in a, a way of uh, in the sort of civilized society, whether we want to talk about sort of, you know, Socrates and the, the Greeks and the archetypes and the gods and, and the place that soul played in understanding of, of what life meant, what was the point and purpose of life. It's always been very present. And I think in the, you know, sort of post-Renaissance and the, 
um, the move into an industrialized society, I think that we have swung the pendulum a bit too far away from all forms of mystery and um, made uh, only the things that are concrete and provable uh, have true value. And I think that's a real loss because we need both. Uh, it's not an either or proposition, but for a rich life and what I call in the book winning deep, we we absolutely need both sides of, of that coin to be um, available and valid in life. You know, a lot of what you talk about is is emotion, fear, connection, vulnerability. And what, what came through is is your own vulnerability as well. I mean, how much of the importance you put on things like vulnerability, connection, has been shaped by your own personal journey and and emotional hurts that, that you've faced and overcome? Because clearly you've, you've personally been through a, a hell of a lot. Mm. I, I think it's inevitable to a degree. You know, um, I had this conversation with a coach a while ago uh, um, asking whether I thought that it was necessary for a person to have faced adversity to, to be truly resilient um, in life and in sport. And adversity itself isn't enough to create uh, resilience or to you know, shape a worldview. You have to make sense of that adversity. You have to sort of do the work and the reflection and, and make meaning of what happened. You know, staying with just the hurt isn't isn't a viable option for progress. And, um, you know, just toughening up and uh, bottling the the adversity and the pain isn't a viable option either. So I would say that I've done the work. uh, I continue to do the work. It's not a done deal. (laughs) I have as many flaws as the next person and as much to work out as the next person. But um, I'm very invested in um, being as honest as I can be about what I feel and where I am. And vulnerable, you can't do that without vulnerability and without this idea of intimacy um, of being, can I show you the real me? Can I um, be here and in a conversation with you and accept my flaws without having to airbrush them? Um, and, you know, and how much richer and deeper our conversations as human beings and our experiences as human beings become when we can just come as all of us. So I think that, yes, my personal journey has absolutely shaped that um, and my own working out and meaning making. But, um, you know, it's something I also see as a repeat pattern again and again in in athletes and performers and people all through life that I work with and I have the, the privilege of working with. This is just such a common thing. So we all have pain. We all have difficulty in our past and and things that hurt um how have we made sense of that in who we want to be pain can clearly be a powerful and important driver to to growth and to enable people often to look back and be grateful for for what they've been through even if it's been absolutely awful at times and you know you talk about vulnerability and and i think what the, the name of your book so how to win at life without losing yourself and that losing yourself i guess is hiding parts of ourselves that perhaps we are rejecting in ourselves and imagining others to reject and and that's something that's clearly very pervasive throughout sport throughout society in organizations you know in politics in in families and and in our own psyches isn't it definitely 
And, and I think that, you know, there's a, a big piece here. Um, vulnerability is one part of it and shame is another part of it, which is sort of, you know, it's something that we all experience um, and we all have um, in varying degrees and it's easily triggered in us. But it's culturally um, uh, reinforced and perpetuated quite often. And in those cultures where we feel like if we are exposed or if we are seen to be dumb or not good enough or failed in some way, there will be just a, a veil of shame that falls uh, and it will be intolerable because it will mean that we're rejected. That's where we really go underground or we either um, close down so much of our emotional uh, um, self, our emotional and spiritual self, and just become more mechanical or robotic so that we can cope um you know kind of like a, a caricature of our of our natural selves or we step out of the game entirely and and again what a loss in either of those cases because you know we are what we are and we're naturally striving to be the best we can be but those external shaming labels are very very unhelpful for a fulfilling life yeah, you talk about shame, and is your sense that the act of shaming is becoming more prominent because perhaps heightened by things like social media and, and stuff like that? I mean, it seems to be at the root of what some people are dubbing the cultural war that's going on in various arenas mm. at the moment. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think back to. Uh, English school systems, or not not the system, I shouldn't say the system, but it's English school cultures and the sort of, you know, growing up in the north of England, the normality of um, school bus and classroom and playground shaming and ab abuse and bullying and how prevalent that has been in the psyche for, um, you know, a long time. And think about it at that level. I think it's been there for quite some time, um, but the scaling up of it through social media has probably you know brought it uh, into the mainstream in ways that you know we, we certainly didn't have 20 years ago and um, and, and there's a mm. uh, maybe a protective factor for the person who wants to shame or bully when they're looking through a screen and not into you know not looking somebody in the face that there's you know we get things like cancel culture where People are able to, people just decide to rub somebody out completely and then they're not valid, they're not worth anything. Um, and that's obviously that erodes the soul in, in tremendous ways. And um, it's, uh, it's a real shame we can't find a better version of ourselves. And, and the person doing the cancelling, I think, it hurts the person who's being affected, but also the person who's perpetrating it, which I guess is true of all, all kind of acts of violence. Yeah. When we become the critic or the judge um, is coming from the same source of fear. Uh, it's a fear of inadequacy. It's a fear of personal inadequacy that's at the source of that. So, you know, when somebody feels the need to prove themselves as better than um, and that they can only be better than when somebody else is worse than or they're, they're only a winner if somebody else is a loser, the root of that is fear. Um, and it can look very powerful and it can look very accomplished too. It, it quite often looks very accomplished. But the truth of the matter is that that's a, that's a fear of inadequacy, of not measuring up and of being uh, cast out on the basis of that. So it's taking, a, 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 it, taking and using power in a way to protect from feeling fear. 
So, yeah, if you're shaming others or involved in that and it can be quite subtle, then understanding that it's coming from a place of fear is a key thing to start to understand. Anyway, we're talking about fear and one place where fear was abundantly obvious, at least until you came in, along with Gareth, was in English football. England often shamed by the media, you know, shrunk on the big stage time after time at, at tournaments. I think, you know, probably reaching a, a nadir when they were knocked out of the Euros by Iceland. And then, you know, you came in along with Gareth Southgate and you do talk about yourself as as a, someone who, who looks at culture. And clearly you helped dismantle that. I always think of the picture that, that, that I remember from the World Cup in 2018 when the, the whole vibe was so different was that picture of the players on the floating toys in the hotel pool, mm-hmm. sort of laughing and having fun. And, and it was clear there was just connection and, and vulnerability and, um, you know, all those things that, that, that bring people together. But just, just going back, because I know you only came in a year previously in 2017, and I've seen you talk about it being the perception of it being the impossible job. Did you have fear about coming into an environment like that? Not really, Simon, because um, I was coming back to England. Um, for, you know, I'd been in Australia for 20 years and, um, and uh, L.A. for a couple of years before I came back. So I was an unknown quantity here and I, I really felt like I didn't have anything to lose. I wasn't vested in football. Um, I saw myself as a beginner in the sport and I still do. Um, and I just felt very sure by that stage of the game in ter- about what I, what I really cared about and what I thought worked, which is centrally the, you know, the quality of relationships that people have with each other um, and, and the culture work. And I, I knew that um, that culture work was doable. So, you know, I walked into a system that had improved out of sight already from 2016. Loads of good work had been done. Gareth had been in place for a year when I when I came in, and um, around about a year, and I, uh, so you know I had the opportunity to come in and um, join the dots and walk in and feel where things were at, and I had, as you pointed out, um, Gareth was very open, my bosses were very open to uh, what kind of change needed to happen, so. Nobody had really talked about fear. I don't think anybody had really talked about fear in the way that we did there. You know, whether we talked about um, some of the really tough issues around uh, racism and what we might experience in Russia or, um, you know, fear of failing. And you, you don't have a whole heap of time with the players in international football. So the conversations with the organisation, with the staff, with the coaches, they're the ones that um, turn the dial a little bit because they're the people who are orchestrating the wins. You know, I'm an ally to that journey um, and I bring different conversations uh, in doing that. So I think that um, actually saying it out loud um, was something that was just ready. They were ready to hear and, um, you know, I've explained this before, um, but people assume that it was the technical worker on the penalty spot that was the difference maker. And, you know, the analysts and the coaches have done brilliant work on that, which I contributed to technically. But for me, the technical work was the least, that was a brilliant moment against (laughs) Colombia. 
but it was the it was not the powerful stuff the powerful stuff was the ability to be themselves to feel some more mental freedom to have some fun and to uh feel the depth and quality of relationships with between staff and player um, player and player and uh the team and the nation as well so came in from all sorts of different angles to make that turn i think it's interesting you say that you know just talking about fear because clearly fear is, is there kind of lurking in the background and it, and it can be all too easy to try and ignore it but you know if you shine the light of awareness on it essentially or acknowledge it and accept it that that's most of the battle isn't it yeah it really is it's, it's like in the in the book i talk about the the sort of um overarching method being see it face it replace it you know so unless you can actually pause for long enough and find the courage to to see where the fear is and what the fear is in your life you're probably going to be fixing the wrong thing and that's the same in teams as you know for individuals or in families or or other kinds of organizations um but you know most of us want to fears are really uncomfortable so most of us want to brush it under the table and fix it too quickly before we've really had a look um what what would i what's the worst thing that could be exposed about me you know what would happen if people thought i was a failure what comes next you know and really excavate and see the fear in your life from there you can start to face what it's costing you how it's showing up um what it's preventing you from doing which is a really important part not just um you know uh, how it plays out in the in the existing opportunities that you've got but it stops us so many of us taking um good risks um and then what might you replace it with yeah so many decisions come from a place of fear before we sort of dive deeper into differentiating the different types of fear and and the stuff you were just talking about there just a final word i mean clearly you and Gareth were a match made in heaven from that point of view. Because he, I think the thing that what struck me about Gareth was he'd been through the worst possible thing, you know, in missing that penalty in 96. He had been to the place of fear. And I can only imagine that, that he realised, well, okay, it's not ideal, but actually it's not as bad as I imagined it would be. So I don't know if, if, if you agree with that, but also then clearly, like I said, you two were, you matched up so well. Our, our attitude and philosophy matched up really well. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just a he's just a really solid, mature person, you know. So he he's somebody who I think had um, done the meaning making from his own journey, not not just the penalty, but um, you know his experience in '96, but also you know through his whole life, he's a mature person, he's a thinker, and um, uh, and. You know, centrally, he is very much person oriented. He really genuinely cares for the players and for the staff equally. So he's easy to be around. And he's, you know, I I couldn't have asked for a a better, um, you know, coach to to be in charge and to lead from that perspective of um, changing culture. It's uh, it made the work much, much easier for sure. Yeah, he's a he's a rare breed of leader, isn't he? He's that kind of new breed. I think think of other great leaders uh, currently, or or the more evolved perhaps leaders. So like Jacinda Ahern, yeah, um, you know that kind of emotionally intelligent, take people along with you type of approach, rather than kind of I'm in charge, do what I say, and it's it's more like look, we're in this together. Yeah, and just you know, um, I mean, he's he's a very likable person. Um, but it's it's way more than that. It's an investment in um, 
the outcome for the other. You know, I think that in leadership, when we see yeah. leaders, that's what I like about Jacinda, um, you know, she's deep, she's deeply purposeful. She knows who she is and she um, is really invested in outcomes for other people. So her compassion shows up readily. And, you know, I, I just hope that, you know, you made the distinction between the new breed and the rare breed. I really hope it's the new breed rather than the, um, the odd one out because we, we um, are ready for some of that. Well, I think I listen. I think you know books like yours, Kath's, Jacinda, Gareth, people like that. It, it's definitely becoming more and more. And then there perhaps are other leaders who who are a bit more. It's not about collaboration. It's about competition. You know, it's that kind of zero sum game, isn't it? It's like I can only win if you lose. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that you know competition's a natural phenomena, and nothing wrong with competition per se. But this deep drive to, as you say, zero-sum game is the problem. So this deep drive to conquer, to win, to, you know, our language around war and battle is, that is really, uh, it's not taking us in the right direction in terms of either leadership or flourishing or even our potential on the sports field. You know, it, it means that there is only one way to be. There is only one archetype um, and it's, it's unimaginative it's um, I think it's, you know, I would go as far as saying it's a lazy way to motivate people. Um, and it's absolutely going to rake up fear for most people most of the time. It's a kind of motivation that might get you a lift at half time. Um, and if you don't have any care for the mental rent that, that that costs people that you're dealing with, then, you know, that's one way to operate. But I think it's a, a shallow way to operate. And I think that there is much, much more available that sets hearts and minds on fire rather than um, leaves people shaking in their boot trying to be obedient and conform to what you want so that they mm. avoid the consequences. Yeah, and it's that—that that is exactly what you're talking about. Or, you know, you're painting the picture of winning shallow or winning deep. And that is what winning shallow is. And we'll get on to winning deep. But let's just quickly, so let's differentiate between the obvious fear. So the, the um, you know, the, the helpful fear, let's call it that, um, I can't remember what you, what you, how you refer to it, but but it's the kind of fear, let's say that that our body, when our body takes over, when there's a tiger rushing at us, or we step into a road and there's a car coming, and it, and it forces us to to leap out of the way. That that's the good fear. But then there's the there's the psychological fear, isn't there? Which I you call the um, the not good enough fear. So it's making that key distinction between the two. Yeah, I mean they're both psychological fears. The, the way I describe it is, it um, we have in the moment fear. Um, as you say, which is the the tiger running towards you, or or um, you know Richie McGraw running towards you, but <laughs> the the um, and, and that's a, a natural and necessary warning system. Fear is a warning system. It's an energy that's generated out of a stimulus that is a warning system to say get ready to react. You know, fight, flight, etc. Um, and we'd be in trouble without it. We absolutely need it. We don't want to um, be fearless. That's why the book's called Fearless, um, because we need it. We don't want, you know, we we don't want to be so um, unfeeling that we don't respond to emotion in that way. However, we have way too much of it, and we're, and it's not very discerning. So um, we we do need to intervene in in the moment fear to turn off the hazard lights. We um, need to boss it quickly. We need to act quickly to do something about that. And, and I talk about the various techniques of doing that. And then there is this other kind of fear, which is um, not good enough fear. And that is the deeper um, psychological 
angst of whether you will be good enough, whether you will be abandoned. And, um, and that is pervasive and joy stealing, fulfillment stealing in all of our lives to some degree or other. Um, and, and my proposition is that that's what really lurks in the corners and disguises itself in many, many different forms of ne negative emotion. That's what's really troubling us in the moment fear. It's natural. It happens. We we need it and we just need to learn how to deal with it. But then there's this other stuff. And I don't think we're addressing the other stuff adequately. Mm. I said um, one's perhaps more psychological than the other because you know, it's it's like that the, the story of a guy who sees a rope at dusk and he leaps back and then his mind comes in and goes, oh, no, that's not a snake. That is a rope. And it's I call it the psychological fear because it's it's very it's based around stories, which is, that you know, that that sense of abandonment that, you, that you're talking about, that fear of that, that deep fear of abandonment that is that is in all of us. And, you know, fear of rejection, fear of um fear of making a fool of ourselves or whatever it may be you know it's, it's all bound up in stories whereas the other tends to be more of a just a, a visceral quick it happens before thought can come in and, and add a story to it exactly yeah it's a really nice distinction it, it's a neuropsychologically it's you know still psychology in that way it's, it's um our deep unconscious leaping mm. forward and acting half a second before we've had any opportunity for the frontal cortex to get involved you know, so we're always that half second behind um, our instincts, which is, you know, so which is why it will always be there. But you're right, the the storied sort of understandings um, that we layer in and, and our culture layers in over time are, are where all of the other fear sits. Um, and we're, we're all, you know, humans are born as the one of the most vulnerable mammals. We're vulnerable for the longest period of time. The human child is absolutely helpless without an adult or a carer. So, you know, we learn very early to understand survival and to understand um, our need for attachment, our need not to be abandoned. And our fear systems are, are um, developed before we're even born. It's that important to us. So, you know, my proposition is that we really don't need to layer in anymore culturally. There's plenty there and it's very easily triggered. So, you know, the, the stories that we tell um, the pennies in our hand in the stories that we tell. And we have to be very careful not to load and layer them with more fear because that's going to take us in the wrong direction. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And you say that we know... And I think this is a really nice distinction. We know when we've lost our way, when either we want to be better than others 
or we fear rejection to others. So it's that kind of subject object competition. Yes. Yeah. I mean, being better than others, you know, there's um, this there's, there's sort of uh, pride in having won something. I, I don't have a problem with that. But it's where that being better means that you have to be unassailable and nobody can get close. Um, you're, you being a winner means somebody else is a loser. That's where the problem comes in. So, you know, finding your very best, that's, they're the people we have admired, you know, through history the most, people who have really explored what's possible and, and um, progressed humankind. Um, that's not the problem. It's the idea that somebody else has to lose because you have to dominate. You have to be the conqueror, the unassailable. That's, that's where I think the problem starts. It's a primitive outlook, isn't it? And you talk about some of the beliefs that are perhaps pretty unconscious or certainly pretty unconscious. For example, and we touched on it there, the idea that someone else has to, has to lose and, and how easy it is for people to internalize that because you know losing in and of itself is, is not only not a bad thing, it's an important thing. Success is or achievement is only fully appreciated when you've had to go through loss and, and defeat, if you like. But it, you make this really nice distinction between losing and being a loser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, failure is not only useful, it's inevitable. You know, anybody who endeavors and is trying to trying something new or, or trying to um, push forward is going to fail. And if we see that as just unacceptable or um, shaming in that in some way, then how much less likely we, are we to be open to trying again, open to pushing a bit further, to, to literally getting back in the arena one way or another? It's, it's just not a useful uh, perspective on um, the pursuit of your potential. So I think that, you know, uh, it, it's a really interesting opportunity we have to open that idea up that you have to be somebody has to be a loser if you you know if somebody loses they are a loser because it's all coming from fear of you not being good enough this scarcity mentality that there isn't enough success to go around and so you've got to get your slice and and not share it I really enjoyed, I mentioned Kath Bishop as well, um, Annie Vernon, who was in the same sort of, well, just slightly after Kath uh, in that uh, Olympic rowing setup. And she got a silver with Catherine Granger in, um, in 2008. And they were absolutely dead set on winning. And it, what's interesting with, with both Kath and, um, and Annie was, was how they did internalise that for a period, that kind of, oh, I've lost, therefore that means that says something about me as a person. And then they went on a process of unraveling that that's led them both to write fascinating books and being able to separate our sense of self from, from let's say, not, I, I like what um, uh, Dave Allred, who I know, you know, mm-hmm. um, talks about, you know, it's, it's not losing or it's just not being able to match your intention. Like, I really like that, that, that separating outcome from what it says about us and our sense of self-worth. Yeah. The, I mean, the, at the end of the day, the outcome's just the outcome. You know, the measure really, the, the soul level measure is how did, who were you in that competition? Did you do that with every, you know, with every bit of your own values and your own intention um, absolutely illuminated? Did you really 
leave nothing out there. And that's a wonderful measure of humanity and of our, of our humanity. So I, I agree with Dave Alred in that, in the, this idea of matching your intention, but the outcome is just the outcome, you know, and I, I really feel it's a loss um, to focus entirely on the silverware or the podium. Um, and I, I do worry about the effect that that has on, on um, mental health of people being able to reconcile their whole identity with having um, achieved a result rather than being on this extraordinary journey to find their very, very deepest strength. A, a couple of the other success beliefs that you wanted to challenge, I'll just rattle through them quickly and then focus on on, on one or two that I thought were really interesting. So you talk about the misconception that, that fear is a really good motivator, that um, you know that feelings are, are for failures and you've got to sacrifice other things for example, you might want to have to you have to sacrifice being a, a good parent or a good husband or, or whatever, or even a nice person in the pursuit of success. So th- those are all myths. But the one that I really would like to zero in on is the whole in-group, out-group. So tribalism is exacerbated hugely by fear. And I thought this was so interesting because, again, we everything's so tribal right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, fear is at the heart of tribalism. It's, you know, the, or ex- Fear is at the heart of tribalism becoming too strong. So belonging is, you know, when you think of um, your tribe or your clan or your family even, you know, that sense of belonging and pride in belonging and pride in the cultural identifiers is a wonderful thing. And that's, you know, that's a big part of something like football or sport. You know, we get such joy and pride from that. And, And I don't think there's anything drastically wrong with that. However, when fear of loss and scarcity comes in um we start to that that tribalism can extend way too far and it becomes us and them it becomes you know um two world wars and one world cup kind of mentality um and that, and and there is a hatred that's just around the corner from that kind of um fearful or fear-laced um uh tribalism that's that's again i i just don't see its value in um, everything that sport can be. I think that it's, you know, it, it's a limited, it's a limited view of what's possible. And again, you know, if you're, if you're a red, fantastic, and the pride in that and the heritage and the family connections and the sense of connectivity across communities, there is so much richness um, in that kind of belonging, that kind of connectivity and tribe in that sense, but tribalism that becomes fearful and hateful um, has no place. It'd be really nice if that kind of tribalism that spills over into, you know, vicious arguments on social media or vicious fights outside football grounds or, or you know, many other places, if people understood exactly what you're saying, which is that, you know, it, it, if you're doing that, it's coming from a place of fear. Or inadequacy, you know, which is the same. It's the same kind of um, uh, same bucket, really. Uh, you know, if somebody's feeling like they have to find the loser in the other, somebody's feeling like they have to be better than that. It's um, you know, uh, it, there has to be a violent encounter of some kind to demonstrate your love for your team. It's, you know, it's gone askew. It's it's coming out of scarcity and fear. And I think there's just so much more mm. richness. You, you, you always see this at a World Cup, you know, 
some of the amazing scenes of fans from all over the world, from different nationalities and teams, arm in arm and enjoying themselves. You always see these moments, these bursts of humanity and connectivity that are just so cool um, and just really the essence of, of um, what sport has to offer in belonging and shared pride, um, even when you are on opposing teams. So, you know, to dig, to still feel your national pride or your your team pride um, and not have it turn into a fear of losing is, um, you know, that would be a good objective. Before we move on to sort of facing fear and your see it, face it, replace it, a quick note on you say, you know, how fear makes you controlling. And I know this in myself, just to give a quick example, like if I'm preparing for a podcast and I'm a bit worried about it, I want to control it to the nth degree. But I know it will go better if I've done my prep and then I let it go and respond in the moment rather than try and control the interaction too much. And I think that can be applied in, in so many ways. The, um, I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, discipline is a really valuable very valuable thing when it comes to performance of any kind. Um, and co- there's many things that we want to be able to control. It's over control. So again, where the pendulum swings too far so that you want to control, for example, the type of interaction that you have, and you can't leave any space for mm. what's naturally there. Um, and, you know, you, you um, when you're in a conversation and you're thinking about what you want to say next, rather than listening to what the person is saying, there's a degree of control of how the conversation is going to go. And you take something away from the interaction. You know, you don't allow anything to emerge that you haven't pre-thought and it's, it's much less rich. So I agree with you that control, um, doing the prep and control to a, de- to a degree is a really valuable thing. But then can you also leave space? Can you also be present um, and um, aware and just allow what's there to, to show up? listen be present it's about connection isn't it because if you've got thoughts there's a barrier between you and you and the other person essentially right let's get on to your uh, see it face it replace it and and the first being um, you know see it and face it really so th- this idea that um you know invulnerability is 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 too common you know we're all vulnerable we all have fears rather than turning away from them it's it's actually having the bravery to look the fear straight in the face. Yes. Um, I, I think it's sort of an, a, um, a kind of a 45-degree turn on how we see bravery. So what I'm um, inviting the reader to do is be brave in seeing where the fear is rather than bravely push through it and cope with it and ignore it, you know, cope with it or ignore it. The bravery is actually in staying still and pausing and putting all four corners of your feet on the ground and saying, what am I really worried about here? What sits underneath, like lift the corner of the rug? You know, what might be, as I said before, what might be exposed? What is the worst that could happen? Who triggers me? How do I behave in those circumstances? You know, where, what kind of circumstance do I feel okay? And what kind of circumstance do I tighten up and feel, you know, an anxious knot in my in my gut and start to have a look at those things um, and really spend the time and now analyzing and evaluating what that fear really is for you because then you're going to be working on the right stuff and then with facing fear this is about once you've sort of said okay well actually I'm just really worried about um, let's say 
you know, if I, if I take an example from my own life, um, if I think, okay, when I'm in a room, early career for me, if I was in a room and I was the only woman in the room and it was accomplished um, professional, ex, ex-professional players, uh, men, footballers, AFL footballers, um, and everybody else knew the game inside out, um, and I didn't know the game inside out, hadn't grown up with it, um, and I was there for a particular reason. I was allowed in the tent, but I would feel a degree of fear that I was going to be exposed in some way by not having the currency that they had um, and not having the cred that they had. So it, what that did for me was manifest in, in um, me having to have everything right, me feeling a a fear of not being good enough in those environments until I actually worked out what my niche was and how to get good at my niche and recognize that that was going to add value and that was enough. Um, So, you know, I had Mm. to really first face the fact that I was afraid of being shown up in that circumstance or not knowing or, you know, being asked a question I couldn't answer. And then I had to um, face what that was costing me. So that meant that I didn't raise my voice when I could have or should have. It meant that I didn't take a position of um, perhaps guiding or challenging a coach um, where they needed it because I didn't want to look dumb or I didn't look like I didn't want to look like I didn't understand the game. So it made me less effective at my role as well as, you know, had a, um, uh, uh, an energy cost, a very strong energy cost to constantly be in those environments mm. and feel like I was an imposter. So, you know, it, it, it took some unraveling and then to sort of say, well, then how will I replace that? You know, what, what works for me in replacing mm. that? And that's the, that's the invitation to really look at it, see it first, face what it's costing you, and then match that up with your own values and what you want to be or what you want to be able to do and decide how you're going to fix that. And then in terms of your see it, face it, replace it. So you talk about replace it and you talk about stories. So it, it's it's the story of who we are, the story of what's happened to us, the story of what may happen to us in future. And, you know, for some people that may be um, a story that does themselves down. For some people it may be a story that aggrandizes themselves. So you And you talk about replacing stories. Mm. And sometimes those stories haven't come from our own generation. They're cultural stories the cultural stories about um, what kind of people can achieve. Um, I I talk about Akala, uh, the example from Akala, um, you know, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire, his brilliant book. And and, um, he he talks in that about being a mixed-race school kid in London and um, how the teacher's expectations about what mixed-race or black and brown kids could achieve had such a profound impact, that narrative had such a profound impact on so many of his peers, um, you know, uh, and they didn't feel the agency. They didn't feel like they actually had a pen in their hand of of the ideas that run their life or the narratives that run their life. And you can say the same with any form of inequity or any any sort of idea. I talk in the book about, um, you know, people from my family don't go to uni or, um, you know, uh, blue-collar workers will never get that kind of job. Um, you know, the, the sort of the narratives and stories and ideas we have about what is and isn't possible. Sometimes they're culturally embedded, not, not self-generated. 
But then those self-generated mm. ones, those ideas we have about ourself, um, layer in on top of that, and, and um, you know they they can sway it too. But the, the whole point is, really, you have much more agency than you think, much more decision-making capability, and much more potential to change that narrative, to decide how you're, what ideas you're going to live by, and what chapter you're going to write next for yourself than than we think johnny wilkinson said something that really um i really enjoyed when i spoke to him a few months back and he said that the stories he would tell about himself would depend on his mood and where he was in his life and so he questioned himself he, he could have different versions of stories about the same event so he would say well okay so which which of the stories is true and he said well Actually, none of them can be true. Essentially, all, all stories, to some degree, are a fiction. Yeah. And something you said at the, the end of the book, which I, I, I really like. In fact, the very last line of your book is, you know, life is just this moment. And when people are present, when people are in flow or seeking effortlessness, like Goldie says, which said to me, when we are in the moment, we, we lose ourselves, and the stories disappear. When all the stories drop away, that's when we're truly content. I'm just interested to hear what what, what you make of, make of that. Yeah, I, that's that's really beautiful. Um, and you know that I think that those moments of of flow and presence are so precious when we can get those. And and there are many times in life when we when we can't get that and we're just going about our culture our business enmeshed in a web of culture and stories you know which we my view is that we can also adjust and edit those much more than we think um and then you know those precious moments of, of freedom from those are, are, um, are a high value commodity when we can get them but you know an, an interesting way to think about it for me simon is um archetypes so this, instead of there being this one central pure truth, there are so many different archetypes and versions and um, ways, uh, you know, different parts of ourself that show up at different moments. You know, sometimes you're the hero, sometimes you're um, the the victim, sometimes you're the, um, you know, you, you can have any kind of archetype like a rescuer or, a, um, you know, a great dad or a um, scholar or a... Um, you know, football teammate, any kind of archetype you can bring to the table. And they're all true. They're all parts and versions mm -hmm. of this one complex, one complex life that we lead, this one complex thing we call a person. So, you know, there isn't necessarily this central truth. And I think the more that we try and, in a Cartesian way, just channel down to this sort of, um, you know, doubtless truth is, um, uh, is, trouble troubling i think that we can be a bit more imagination imaginative than that and have a bit more room for ambiguity than that and um, and tolerate it you know it's uh, it's um that doesn't take away from our potential in any way and final couple of things pippa that i thought were really beautiful like almost a manifesto that, that you came out with in terms of you know once we see our fear and acknowledge our fear and and understand where it's showing up, whether it be in shaming ourselves, shaming others, wanting to beat someone, scared of being rejected by someone, tribalism, all these different things that we've discussed. And you talk about replacing fear with surrender, the importance of connection, vulnerability, and 
purpose. So yeah, just just to finish, can can you just talk about replacing fear or leaning in the direction of surrender, connection, and purpose, which all for me fall under the bracket of love. And, and just a qu- quick side note: uh, um, a famous uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, I can't remember, talked about there are ultimately only being two emotions, and you allude to this about fear or love. Yeah, I totally agree. They all fit under the banner of love or a, a manifestation of love in our lives. You know, it's, um, it's underrated. <laughs> um, and if, if we think about surrender, you know, I'm talking there about useful surrender, about not assuming all the weight of the world and control on your own two shoulders um, and um, allowing the idea that there are other forces in the world that are, are um, conspiring one way or the other to support you and to give you resources um, uh, uh, or surrendering control when you've done everything you can and you want to just be in the moment. Um, I, I talk about as well connection and intimacy, as we mentioned, being really so central to be able to just find the richness and depth in relationships, genuine, authentic relationships with other people. That's, that's the the real um, elixir of life. And, um, and I think from a purpose point of view, purpose is not the same as a goal. Goals are valid and wonderful and um, very, very useful in our lives. We're very goal-oriented as a species and, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, purpose is about finding that um, that sense of meaning that's outside of you. It's about what can you do beyond yourself um, that is some way compelling in terms of others, social impact, other kinds of relationships. You know, what, what are you giving your energy to? What are you giving your time and your um, talent to that's outside of yourself that brings deep reward and meaning? And that doesn't have to be grand. The humble is as great as the grand in, in that respect. And the more that we can uncover those things, and, and it's quite often uncovering them rather than adding them, um, unco- the more we can uncover those things in life um, and have those as anchors, genuine foundations to our way of being, the less room fear has at the table. Just a final thought, which is, you know, you come up with this beautiful line that you know, with fear is this this belief that perhaps we need fixing, but actually, you know, the human experience as humans, we are we're all messy, and um, and and that should be celebrated as much as success and 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 messiness and growth sort of go hand in hand. Well, I think you know at this moment in time where we're um, you know we're in a very uh, um, unusual state where there's lots of fear being raked up, and you know, uh, in the face of sort of the pandemic. The one thing I would encourage people to do is um, to recognize that we're as a very adaptable creature (laughs) as a human being, not to over adapt towards fear. And just as you said, then, Simon, to just leave the space open for love, for possibility, for surrender and for keeping your feet on the ground and making different choices. You've got more agency right now than you think when it comes to your mentality, even if not in terms of your circumstances. So I just encourage everybody to leave that space right now in terms of, of um, what the next period of time looks like for us all. Dr. Pippa Grange, like I said, you know, I've been um, desperate to talk to you for 
truth be told, well over a year now. And um, it's lived up to easily and exceeded expectations. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. It's been a real joy. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast with me, Simon Mundy, and Dr. Pippa Grange. I'd be delighted to hear from you, so please do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. <laughs>